This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Snagging the top prize for physics, scientists who work at the Keck Observatory are on a high celebrating the Nobel Prize in Physics by one of their astronomers. UCLA astronomer Andrea Ghez has spent a quarter century studying the black hole. Twenty of those years were using the Keck telescope on Mauna Kea. Listen to part of her story in this segment provided by Keck Observatory. In the mid-1990s, a young scientist from UCLA wanted to prove the existence of a supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Our very first proposal to, to do this project was turned down because people didn't believe that um, our techniques for taking the blurring effects uh, of the Earth's atmosphere out would actually work. So I convinced some colleagues to let me use their telescope time. The key was to modify existing cameras to be able to use the telescope in a new and different way. And what that allowed us to do was to see the stars that were very close to the center of the galaxy. So we discovered them and we could see them move, but we couldn't see them move very accurately. The stars that Andrea Ghez found provided evidence that an immense yet invisible gravitational source existed at the center of the galaxy. Could it be a black hole? In the early 2000s, Keck engineers designed a new, highly advanced adaptive optic system that would allow Andrea to unlock the mystery. So when adaptive optics came online, for the first time ever, we could tell, well, what kind of star are we looking at? And how is that star moving along our line of sight? That gives you the third dimension that was missing um, in terms of this game of measuring the orbits of stars at the center of the galaxy. After years of tireless research and ongoing innovation, Andrea's team would deliver an amazing discovery. What you learn is that there's a supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. And the mass of this thing is four million times the mass of the sun. And we can confine it to a region that's roughly the size of our solar system. So it's important from a basic understanding of how the universe works because we have the opportunity to, to explore a frontier of knowledge that's never been explored before. From a scientist's perspective, this is like being a kid in a candy shop. You're just seeing questions all over the place. That was Andrea Ghez, a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, and director of the UCLA Galactic Center Group. She's one of only four women to have been awarded the Nobel Prize of Physics, following in the footsteps of Marie Curie. Now, we also reached out to John O'Meara, the chief scientist at the Keck facility. The researchers have been able to continue their work, even under the restrictions of the pandemic. They are grateful and humbled at the opportunity, even as there is uncertainty about a pretest travel program uh, that kicks off on October 15th for Hawaii Island that could affect their work. The scientists are positively giddy, though, as they share in the joy of Gez's accomplishment. This is truly a, a really great day for, for astronomy on Mauna Kea, for Keck Observatory, for, for the astronomical community, and for women in science. Uh, Andrea is only the, the fourth woman to, to receive the Nobel Prize in physics and the first, uh, first woman astronomer slash astrophysics to receive the prize. So it's, it's, a, it's a great moment for her and for astronomy and for all who practice it. But for the observatory, it's, it's a really uh, special treat because Andrea's work, uh, she was one of the three people to win the prize. Her work was done entirely with Keck here on Mauna Kea. And so this has been a, a quarter century's labor of love for Andrea and the observatory working together. And it's really great to see her honored for this. It's an amazing scientific result one that's, that's really changed the way we view our galaxy and the entire universe. And, and we're, we're just thrilled to hear that she won the ultimate prize in physics. Now, the scientists on the mountain have been very fortunate because even during the shutdown, you've been able to do your work. Yes. For brief periods of time, we were completely shut down and unable to do work. But for most of the period of time during COVID and during the the protest period, we were able to do science from the mountain. And so how are you handling the physical distancing working up there, the telescopes? We've altered a lot of how we work on the summit right now, both in terms of the number of people that we have. Uh, right now we have a hard limit of 14 people at the summit just to, to maintain and, uh, and guarantee social distancing. We also have a lot of uh, modifications on how we work in confined spaces um, and 
Uh, we have different shifts of, of teams than we normally did just to make sure that, that we can maintain continuity if, if somebody unfortunately were to become ill. So we've, we've changed a lot of how we work on the summit and at headquarters. Our headquarters staff is largely still working from home. So you know, we've, we've changed a lot of how we work, but we're still able to, to meet our mission, which is to, to be on Sky every night. And so I know when we last chatted, I think it was about a month ago, there was some concern about a second lockdown, and each island has done something a little different. We pretty much daily monitor the number of cases on the island, but the number of cases isn't the only metric that we use. We also look at the number of available hospital beds. We look at the positivity rate. We look at the availability of testing, the availability of contact tracing, and all those things put together determine our, our, how we respond to, to the, the virus here on the Big Island. Um, so if, you know, if, if there's no one factor that makes us decide how to change how we work. It's really the combination of those factors, but we keep a pretty close eye on it every day. First and foremost, we obey any of the restrictions uh, by the county or by the state or, or federally. And then we have additional restrictions here at the observatory and, and amongst the other Mauna Kea observatories because there are some shared facilities like Halepahaku where we, we have additional constraints that we place on our workforce just to maintain safety. And with the pre-travel testing program that's about to start uh, on the 15th, uh, there's been, you know, I guess some back and forth about whether uh, Hawaii Island is going to adopt that. But what does that mean for um, your planning purposes? Well, what it means for us is that we would be able to have some, uh, some of our collaborators come in from the mainland, whether or not those are technical teams that work on the observatory or its instrumentation, or some of the scientific teams building instrumentation. Um, if they would be able to, to come under that plan, we would have additional testing protocols that we would require before they could come to the observatory. But it, it would be the slow opening of the door to be able to, to bring more people to the observatory to continue to do some of the work that's been stalled other than the nighttime operation. We would actually have an additional testing protocol for people to come in. So there would be the testing protocol that's mandated from the state and from the county. And then we'll have an additional round of tests before they can come to the observatory. I know that the director of the uh, Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope, they had to push off the opening. You know, they, they were hoping to open this month, and that's been pushed off now to the spring. And, and it was really because a lot of their contractors who were building the telescope you know, couldn't really deal with this 14-day quarantine. That's correct. They were they were in a very critical time, which is called commissioning, which is you know the very first uses of the of the telescope on sky, and that requires, in most cases, a significantly larger team than is during normal operations. And because of the quarantine period, they weren't able to bring those people in effectively because a lot of times you want people to be able to come come in and out fairly rapidly and 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 go back to the mainland, bring back different equipment if needed or, or things like that. And they just weren't able to be able to do that effectively. And so it, it is representing a big delay for them. But hopefully when we can get past this, this quarantine restriction, um, DKIS can, can go back to the commissioning work because it's a, a really impressive facility that has a lot of promise. The, the hunger for the science is definitely there because these are the best facilities in the world. And, and people are, are try very hard to get time on these telescopes. And what's the snapshot for the other telescopes on Mauna Kea? Uh, right now, most of them, in fact, I believe all of them are, are, are operating on sky, at least the ones that are they're actively operating. They're the, the two telescopes that are in the process of decommissioning, so they're, of course, not operating, but everybody else is. Um, I believe all the telescopes are operating with, with a, a lower staff complement than usual up at the summit, and in most cases, people are still working from home instead of the headquarters facilities, in, either in Hilo um, which is where most of the headquarters are, or in Waimea, which is where, where Keck and CFHT have their headquarters. Okay, but again, just uh, very fortunate to be able to keep doing the work that uh, you want to be doing. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very, uh, very, very fortunate to be able to, to continue to operate on Mauna Kea. We're fortunate to operate on Mauna Kea in general, but, but right now at this time we're, we're, we're doubly fortunate to be able to, to meet our mission. And, and triply fortunate because now you've got the Nobel Prize too. And now, yeah, now now Keck is, is has been helped helped been a player in a, in a second Nobel Prize. Yeah. Yeah. So the black hole. Anything you want to say about that? Um, well, this is you know this is really a, a, a discovery that's been a labor of love for Andrea and her team. They've been 
for a quarter century, they've been looking at this this one spot on the sky, the center of our, our Milky Way galaxy, and um, they definitively proved that there's a, a supermassive black hole there. And at, at the time that this ex- experiment began, people thought that that was a silly idea, and uh, it's rewritten textbooks, and now we believe that almost all galaxies have a a supermassive black hole at their centers. And so, you know, Andrea and her team and, and Reinhard Gensel and the other team have really uh, fundamentally changed how we how we look at parts of the universe. All right. And Hawaii uh, did play and a ho- part in this. Ho- Hawaii has led the way. This is very much a Hawaii, Mauna Kea, and Keck discovery. All right. Well, congratulations. Thank you. That was John O'Mara, chief scientist of the Keck Telescope on Mauna Kea, celebrating the announcement that researcher Andrea Ghez has won the Nobel Prize for Physics. A second scientist, Hilo High School graduate Jennifer Doudna, has won the Nobel Prize for her work in gene editing. She has been featured before here on The Conversation. We hope to, to talk with her again another day. One of the country's most trusted doctors on COVID-19 believes Hawaii can reopen to tourists with precautions. Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of infectious diseases at the National Institutes for Health, spoke with Lieutenant Governor Josh Green on Olelo Community Television this morning. Green is leading the state's plan to reopen to tourists on October 15th, but has met with opposition from neighbor island mayors who say the program isn't safe enough. The reality is, no matter what you do, there are going to be yes. infected people who slip through the cracks. It, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. The critical issue is that since you have such a low level of infection right now, that you should be able to handle that and prevent that from blipping up. I mean, you've got to be able to prevent that from happening. If you do that, you can accept that you're going to have Sometime or other after you open up, regardless of what you do, there's going to be people infected. So number one, be prepared to be able to get all over that, do the five things I keep talking about, but also the wearing of the mask, et cetera. So now you're asking me, should we stick with one thing, the 72 hours before you get on a plane and come, and do nothing else, or should we get the 72 hours and have a 14-day quarantine. So a 14-day quarantine in a location that depends on tourism is a real tough one because most people have two weeks of vacation. (laughs) They don't want to spend it locked up in a hotel no matter how beautiful the hotel is. So I would do something. In other words, I can understand the anxiety of people on the island saying, You know, if you just do a test 72 hours earlier and that's all you do, that's not going to be enough. I mean, you're just anxious. But again, you don't want to go and quarantine everybody. That would hurt the tourism business. But you mentioned two or three things that are worthwhile. You can either get the really cheap, rapid, not that sensitive test and test everybody that comes through quickly, bango, and not like a really expensive Uh, you know, total amplification PCR, you're not going to get everybody, but statistically, you're going to dramatically diminish the likelihood that an infected person enters. Or surveillance. Don't test everybody, but pick out representative ones to see what's coming into the country and special attention to people that might have been at greater risk, like college students coming back from hot areas. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of infectious diseases at the National Institutes of Health, who spoke with Hawaii's Lieutenant Governor Josh Green this morning about Hawaii's pre-travel testing program.
Continuing on this thread of testing incoming travelers, we look at Alaska's testing program. It isn't working quite as hoped. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So what did you find out about Alaska's program? Well, as best we can tell, it seems uh, to be uh, working somewhat uh, in that people come to Alaska, you know, they're, they're tested beforehand. Uh, they're supposed to uh, isolate and, and social distance uh, strictly um, for until they get a second test, which is 7 to 14 days later. And, and then they, once they pass the second test, then they can do anything they want. Um, until then, they're limited and they can do all the fun things you'd want to do in Alaska, I guess. You know, hiking and fishing and, and doing things outdoors, but not really going to bars and restaurants. Uh, the issue, and again, we talked to a travel expert, uh, Scott McMurrin, in Alaska. The problem is, in Anchorage, they still have wide community spread and and really it it sounds like things are pretty bad in Anchorage. So despite this uh, two test uh, uh, protocol, they're still having big problems in Anchorage. Okay, so it's not so much than the tourists that are coming in. We're talking about the residents that are kind of sharing. (laughs) Right. So this seems to be the 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 case and and again as you recall here when we didn't have tourists uh, back in uh, July and August we had a lot of cases and spiking cases here despite not having tourists at all because it looked like people were uh, misbehaving or at least uh, not practicing the things that uh, the public health uh, experts say we should be practicing so that's the same thing that seems to be happening in Alaska. Even with the two tests, um, it doesn't make up for people not really being smart. Yeah, because we've got about, what, 2,000 people flying into Hawaii every day, you know, and, and right. they think that's yeah. going to more than double. Right. But so we could have, we'll, we will have more people, but as you just heard from Dr. Fauci, it seems like what he's saying, at least, he, he seems to be siding with, with the lieutenant governor saying, you know, one test is good, uh, but more important are all the things that uh, we need to be, <laughs> that he keeps saying, everybody keeps saying to do these, fi- these, these things, wear a mask, uh, so, stay six feet apart, avoid large groups, um, avoid indoor settings with large groups, all of those things, and that seems to be the issue in Alaska. From from what I found out talking to the travel uh, expert, that seems to be what's going on in Anchorage. We did reach out to the uh, health director, Dr. Zink. She uh, actually texted back and, and was very nice, but said, look, I'm, I'm in meetings all day. I just can't talk today. So uh, we weren't able to confirm with her, but it seems to be pretty uh, legitimate uh, what's going on based on just looking at their numbers. And I know the concern here is that, you know, we don't have enough tests if all of a sudden we're testing everybody a second time and we've got to have enough of these supplies here on island. Um, I, I wonder, you know, what the situation is there in Alaska, you know. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's up to the traveler to get the second test. But as, as you noted, Dr. Fauci was saying and, and the lieutenant governor were saying here, you know, maybe we could get enough of these uh, rapid, these an- inexpensive rapid antigen tests that you could have another layer of, of screening to just give a rapid antigen test to everybody who comes here on arrival. I think that uh, there might be enough uh, for that. And again, the lieutenant governor is saying, well, what if we screen a certain percentage or number of people, some kind of representative or random sample, uh, and maybe that would be another layer of precaution. But yes, we do hear that there aren't enough tests to test all estimated 8,000 uh, people and uh, provide enough tests for ourselves. Right, yeah, can we sustain it? So I, I guess it boils down to... Uh, how well people behave, whether you're a tourist or a, or, or a local person. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be that seems to be the story, Catherine. Exactly. So yeah, maybe this testing before you get on the airplane isn't 
isn't like, okay, I'm going to go to Vegas now because <laughs> you don't want to bring <laughs> something back, right? You just got to be really right. careful and follow uh, right. follow the rules. Um, this seems to be what they've been telling us all along. So, again, the testing is a – it could be really helpful, uh, but it's no substitute for people just really being careful. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. To read his story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering reconnections to the art, courtyards, and the museum community. Open Thursdays to Sundays with new evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn about the recent FCC auction of the 3.5 gigahertz frequency, better known as Citizen Broadband Radio Service, We'll find out why companies want access to this frequency and how they plan to use it. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. It's been about a week since President Trump tested positive for COVID, had to be hospitalized at Walter Reed Medical Center, but then was treated and released. Our political analyst, Neil Milner, joins us today for The Long View. Hi, Mel. Hi, Neil. Hi, Catherine. You know, my head is just reeling. <laughs> it's yeah. been a lot to process this well, last week. Well, I can't really unreel your head, but I guess I can explain what happens when, if and when presidents become incapacitated while they're in office. So yeah. that's the best I can do for you, Catherine. Well, have at it, because, <laughs> you know, that was certainly, uh, you know, a real scare for people. Well, it's a scare for people uh, for obvious reasons. It's a secondary scare because both of the candidates are up there in age, uh, that is, they're around my age. But uh, there are different, there are different uh, scenarios here. So let's start with, uh, with what would be the easiest about what would happen if a president becomes incapacitated. Um, first of all, you start with the Constitution. It doesn't say much about it. It says that it talks about the president's inability to carry out their, his or her duties. And then there's, a, uh, there's an act called the Presidential Succession Act, 1947 with some later modifications. The problem, as you'll see, is no one has ever defined what inability means. But okay, so what happens if the president is unable to carry out the office? The easiest, well, the, probably the easiest thing is if nobody tells anybody, and that actually happened. Woodrow Wilson, for a year, was incapacitated with a stroke. Uh, his wife and a couple of henchmen ran it, and even his vice president didn't know. But that's not likely to happen anymore the way the medium works. So the easiest thing now is that if a president knows he or she might be incapacitated for a while, let's say minor surgery, which is what George Bush did, you can turn it over pretty much informally to your vice president. So for you Dick Cheney fans, for a brief moment in time, Dick Cheney was president of the United States. Um, and uh, that's the easiest way. But that's not really the way that people worry about that. The, the real way is what if a president, a sitting president, um, becomes incapacitated but has never given up uh, the, the delegated, turned over the presidency, at least temporarily, to the vice president? One, because he is unwilling to do so, but the more common reason may be that uh, the president may, may have had a stroke and is unconscious. The president didn't have a chance to do anything. So there is a process that the Presidential Succession Act uh, allows that uh, says that if a president uh, seems to be unable to carry out the office, a committee composed of the vice president and the cabinet members take a vote on 
whether or not the president should continue his duties, and they send the results of that to Congress. Um, if the majority voted uh, in favor of doing it, then um, the, the majority of this committee, and then the committee, then the vice president takes over um, until further notice or until the president actually takes back um, the power. So that's that's one situation. Even so, there still is this issue that says the uh, inability is still undefined. So the 1947 Act says if a president pushes back on the certification, I mean, let's say the president is conscious but is unwilling to accept this, and that's not hard to um, imagine because if sometimes if you have a significant stroke, you could be in that kind of that kind of position. In that case, the president, that group of the vice president and the cabinet members, take another vote. They have four days to go back to Congress with their certification. That certification has to be approved. Now, listen to the numbers here. By two-thirds of the vote of both the House and the Senate, which is a higher number than you need for impeachment. Um, and uh, if, if that, you don't get the vote, then the president... Uh, stays president regardless of how incapacitated he may be or she may be. So you can see it works okay when there's voluntarily delegated authority. Uh, as, but as soon as it's not voluntary and you have to rule rules, that's when it gets difficulty and difficult. And with certain kinds of presidents, you can see that kind of problem uh, yeah. happening. I'm so just amazed that, you know, somebody has to really think of these scenarios. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some secession for scenarios where the president pro tem, we'll talk about this in the next show, the president pro tem of the Senate becomes the president. That would be Chuck Grassley right now who um, makes Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden like spring chickens. Grassley's 87 years old. So, okay, so now the final thing is what happens if a presidential candidate dies before the election? And, of course, that was one of the concerns when, uh, with Donald Trump when he caught the serious disease. So this is where it really can get very uh, dicey. The first thing that happens is that you have to choose a new candidate, and that's up to the respective political parties. So if a Democratic candidate, you know, the nominee for president, dies before the election, then the Democratic National Committee has a mini-convention, basically. They have their own rules. Republican National Committee has similar rules. And they would select in a mini-convention who would be the representative from all states. Okay, now, think about where we are right now if that would happen. That works fine if you got a lot of time. Like, say, the conventions were in August, and some one candidate passed away, say, in September. But what happens now, a month before the election, when ballots are going out, in some places people have already voted, uh, can you get a new person on the ballot? How if the ballots have already gone out? And what makes that – so there's a logistic problem, and what makes it – even uh, even harder. It sounds like I'm working out the world's hardest mathematical problem and the most depressing one. What happens is that um, ballot eligibility, like most voting rules, are up to the state. So you really can have 50 different set of rules. Does the state even allow for a change on the ballot? If so, by what deadline? And you add that to, is it even possible? Is there even time to do it? So, and, and my guess is that from now on, that's going to be a more pressing question. From now on, I mean past 2020, because there's just more mail-in ballots than there used to be. So it's quite possible that at least in some states, maybe more than some, the deceased name would appear on the ballot. Um, and um, that's, that's where we're going to end this explanation today. But you can see what the next question is. What happens under those circumstances if a deceased person gets elected to be president of the United States? Um, there are some ways of dealing with it according to rules and constitutions, but if you toss that question into the turmoil that's likely to accompany the 2020 election, including refusal to accept results, the likelihood of a lot of litigation, 
and the fact that it is possible by law to manipulate the electors, um, it could really get sticky. But that's a sneak preview for the next show. Well, I, I know if you say that the, you know it varies from state to state about you know what could happen in this last scenario. Yeah. You know, I, this report says, well, this could lead to a whole lot of mischief. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you'll, we'll get to the mischief in detail, but one possibility is that um, if a state, let's say a state has a Republican governor and a Republican legislator, legislature, but a Democrat wins the state, um, there is some talk about the fact that the, the legislature uh, would, would appoint a different set of electors uh, that could uh, vote that you would not vote in the way that the state voted. Now this is this is above and beyond uh, uh, a deceased candidate. That's just a regular candidate. And the Supreme Court, it used to be that the state legislature elect, selected electors. Um, that we moved away from that. Um, uh, but the U.S. Supreme Court has has essentially said it's possible that the states could could take that power back even if they gave it away before. That's that's all kinds of hanky-panky are possible there. Okay, well, I don't really even want to think about, you know, refusal to accept the results, but that is another subject for another day. Yes, that's right. <laughs> all right, thanks so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. That was Neil Milner, retired political professor at the University of Hawaii and our contributing analyst here on The Long View. With all the emphasis on economic recovery, we're looking at ways we can help our farmers as we work to build our resilience during tough times. Today, we talked to Lara Ka'akua, CEO of the Hawaiian Islands Land Trust, about efforts to keep agricultural lands intact to make farming and ranching more affordable for the future. Hawaiian Islands Land Trust, we're Hawaii's islands-wide local nonprofit land trust, and we protect and steward lands important to Hawaii, our well-being, you know, our identity, our health, and then we teach future generations to do the same. So our end goal is a, a community that's incredibly connected to the land and in a reciprocal relationship with the land. So they're caring for the land and the land's caring for them. And so when you try and connect communities, you know, with the Aina, uh, you know, what, what's a, one example that you can give of something, you know, recently where you've done that? Our most recent closing would be Ma'o Farms, which was a, a large partnership project. And in that purchase, Ma'o Farms was able to purchase the land. The Trust for Public Land helped on the acquisition. And Hawaiian Islands Land Trust holds a conservation easement over the Palikea property that Ma'o Farms has now put into production. And that conservation easement keeps that land in organic farming forever because that's what Ma'o and the Wai'anae community had wanted and envisioned. You know, now more than ever, agriculture and sustainability is at the forefront. How are you helping to expand that goal? With this pandemic, the average person, I think, is now thinking about where their food is coming from. We all had that experience of rushing around to make sure that we had food at the start of this pandemic. And I think by now, most people have heard the scary statistic, you know, that we import 85% of our food and have less than a week's supply if the ships stop coming. And so there is an urgency with which we're working. And one of the tools that we're able to open to Hawaii farmers and ranchers is this agricultural conservation easement tool. And recently, Hawaiian Islands Land Trust signed a, an agreement with NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service. It's a federal agency under USDA. 
And this agreement really opens the door for significant funding to come into Hawaii to directly benefit farmers and ranchers. And the tool of the conservation or the agricultural conservation easement is really a legal agreement between the land trust and the farmer or rancher. And what it says is that the farmer or rancher agrees to forever give up certain property and development rights. So they may agree to never subdivide their property. They may agree to only develop one house instead of their allotted eight houses. They may agree to something even more dramatic like Ma'o Farms to commit the, the entire property to organic agriculture in perpetuity. And when they give up these property rights, we can actually purchase those rights from them and then they benefit immediately from the income received from selling those rights. You know, we often hear about the rub and the tension out there in the community, you know, when we have these fake farms. In Hawaii, the land, our agricultural zoned land, is still looked at as though development is the highest and best use, and that's how it's valued. And so our agricultural land prices are the highest in the nation. What this this agricultural conservation easement tool seeks to do is to buy out those development and subdivision rights so that the land is really valued at the end of the conservation easement as true working agricultural land. And the farmer or rancher as the proceeds from selling those rights that they can invest right back into their farming operation. So this really helps the, the farmer, the true farmer, uh, not just someone that's going to put up, you know, several houses and maybe use them as vacation rentals uh, and then right. just do some cursory ag. So this is really for the, for the true farmers. Yeah, the guys out there working every day to feed us pretty much. That's really a priority for Hawaiian Islands Land Trust now is to support those farmers and ranchers and protect the land that produce food that's actually eaten in Hawaii. So, uh, you know, filling our bellies and reducing that scary statistic of only having less than a week's worth of food in an emergency situation. The uh, agricultural conservation easement funding from NRCS has just been historically underused in Hawaii. And the local team at NRCS and, you know, regional leadership They're really passionate about changing the tide, and I think they see how a lot of our small farmers are just really, really struggling and want to give them a leg up. And so we're working together to really bring in, for the first time in Hawaii, very significant funding. So, you know, we just signed this programmatic agreement and have already secured $2 million, which is poised to go to support a working farm on Hawaii Island and a working farm on Oahu. And those projects are in the works. And the way that we're expecting this will go is if we can make some headway in supporting these farmers with, you know, at a time when they really need it the most and when our community needs them to succeed the most, then We're hoping that in future years, even more funding can be secured on an annual basis. Um, There are some states like Vermont, you know, where over half of their land are actually protected under these agricultural conservation easements. And so it's really a commitment to sustaining ourselves when we look at these easements. Now, we recently did a story about uh, protection of property in Ka'u, and it was with the Freeman Foundation and the Trust for Public Land. You know, how different would that deal be from what you would now be able to do with this new pot of money? Yeah, thank goodness, you know, for for Freeman Foundation and the funders, the, the county and state funders that came in to support that effort. This really just provides one other resource. And especially, I think that the property that you're referring to in Ka'u is really a great mix of cultural sites and working pasture land. We have some farms where there's, you know, they're not part of a huge cultural landscape. And so they're, they're just there, uh, you know, farming tomatoes or doing whatever it is that they're doing to support our local ag industry. And a lot of the, the state and county funding sources, they wouldn't compete very well for those funding sources. And so this pot of federal funds is 
directly for those farmers who are actually producing food to, to help feed our community. So a new pot of money to access. You want to get the word out to local farmers that you could help them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're welcome to to contact us. I will say that the uh, type of property that we're looking for is any property that's privately owned and actively farmed or ranched. You know, we only work with willing landowners. So this is very much carrot and not a stick. It's, it's just an incentive for those landowners that really want to see their lands forever go on producing food in the first place. And this just helps them um, actually sustain their operations. We have been learning about the Hawaiian Islands Land Trust and a new pot of federal money that can help landowners and farmers keep acreage in agriculture for the future. The Hawaiian Islands Land Trust has worked to protect more than 21,000 acres of land across the state and was just recently reaccredited. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering an executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. HPR is a nonprofit that is funded in large part by listeners, individuals making contributions they can afford and pooling their resources to support this essential public service. The vast majority of these funds go toward the things that matter most to you, the news and music you rely on, platforms like our website and mobile app, and the infrastructure that keeps you connected no matter where you are. Make the leap from listener to member. Become a sustainer in our fall pledge drive at hawaiipublicradio.org. This morning, HBR reporter Ku'uve Hirishi joins us in studio to talk about race, adoption, and a rising star in the Hawaiian falsetto music scene. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. This is one of those uniquely Hawaii stories I've been wanting to cover for a really long time. Uh, for those who might not be familiar with this next falsetto singer, a Hawaiian falsetto music star, Kamaka Keho Fernandez, uh, here's your chance to kind of get a a tune of what he can do. Not only does he hit this next high note, but he holds it in this rendition of Alika by Charles uh, Kapa'a. Thirty-seven seconds is what my timer says on that note. Uh, but this story, Kamahokeho Fernandez, I remember my first time I had uh, met him. I was at a fundraiser on Kauai in Hanalei. I got my plate lunch, went to the entertainment uh, tent to sit down because I heard this beautiful voice, right, coming from the stage. And it wasn't until I sat down and looked towards the stage that I realized that he was, in fact, African-American. Akamaka Keho uh, was black. And this is the story, really, of his life. Fernandez was born uh, African-American in Little Rock, Arkansas. But at just six weeks, he was adopted by a very strong Native Hawaiian family on Maui, uh, the Naiole Ohana. His late mother, Robin Naiole, had really instilled in him a strong sense of cultural pride when it comes to being... Uh, raised Hawaiian. So he was enrolled in the Papahana Kayapuni, the Hawaiian language immersion program, where he uh, was immersed in the culture and also the language, uh, which he uh, later became fluent in. And so as you can imagine, growing up in this environment, <laughs> um, he always thought of himself as Hawaiian and really didn't uh, look much beyond that as a kid growing up. Aoia, ke ko'i ko'i o ka mau popo ana i kou lahui. Aka no'u, 
He's saying that he, he grew up realizing or being constantly reminded that identity was something important uh, that he uh, was supposed to perpetuate and that he was supposed to uh, had a responsibility to really um, keep going. But that that identity was really Native Hawaiian. And it wasn't until his musical career uh, took off and took him uh, beyond Hawaii that he realized how the rest of the world, uh, you know, sees uh, a black man in America. And so this journey of his uh, right now, he wants to go and uh, discover his roots in Little Rock, Arkansas, and take the journey from Maui to Arkansas and eventually uh, back to uh, the ancestral homeland uh, in West Africa. And all of that is going to be captured in a music-filled documentary called uh, Kamaka Keho, uh, The Heart's Desire. And so the film is being produced by uh, the Pokolo Project, a Hawaii-based nonprofit that aims to sort of redefine what it means to be black in Hawaii. Kemi Glenn, the organization's founder and executive director, uh, says Fernandez's story may be very unique, uh, but it's also really relatable right now because it's really a story uh, of searching for connection and context uh, within uh, what's going on around the world right now. We're at a moment now where people are really drilling down to understand what it is that makes us human and what we will stand for as humans. And the Black Lives Matter movement, um, at its fundamental core, um, even that simple statement, Black Lives Matter, is really pushing us to think about how we show up for the humans in our lives and how we disrupt systems of oppression. And I think Kamaka's story helps Hawaii have a different vision of itself. Um, He's very much a son of Hawaii. He grew up here. Um, He's perpetuating traditional Hawaiian culture. He was hanaied into a Hawaiian family. Um, it gives Hawaii a different opportunity to look at itself and to think about what it means to belong here. But it also shows the rest of the world something that Hawaii often says about itself, that it's a safe place and that uh, we have something to teach the rest of the world. Ah, so making putting Hawaii on the map as some uh, place that has uh, some of the answers in terms of belonging right now, right, when it comes to race and identity. Uh, so the they... Uh, They had big plans for shooting and filming in 2020, uh, but the pandemic came along to sort of disrupt some of that. Uh, But they were able to start uh, initial shooting here on Oahu back in August and are now just sort of awaiting what happens next with the pandemic uh, to schedule anything further. Now, uh, has he recorded a a lot? Do you know? Yes. So he started out actually winning a lot of local falsetto competitions uh, as a teenager, but then also as a uh, young adult. He was able to uh, win in 2013, I believe, a Nahoku Hanohano Award for his album, his debut album, Vahi Mahalo. Um, and so he is on the map, but musicians under the pandemic right now, especially, right, um, he has trying to figure out what to do next. Uh, what I've, uh, in my conversations with him talking about this documentary, uh, he was really interested to find uh, sort of signature sounds along this journey back to Arkansas and and back to to West Africa to use some of that uh, not only in the documentary but incorporated into his music um, and possibly we will hear some new genre of Hawaiian falsetto that incorporates some of that. Oh, that would be so fascinating! A little bit of country, a little <laughs> bit of you know uh, African some oh, traditional that would be instruments. Amazing. It is, and it, and it's really you know it's. It's the journey that we all want to take to discover our roots and and, and fold that back into our, our current day reality. So it's it's fun to watch him uh, discover uh, what what he's gonna discover, but also uh, see w- what becomes of him. You know, like what? How does this whole situation and this journey how will it shape him and shape his future music it would be fun if he would win an emmy and then to see the the reactions of the folks you know back on the continent right right uh, if you will uh to you know yeah this he sounds hawaiian 
He's African American. It would be interesting. Defying stereotypes with that voice. Uh, yes. So yes, Kamaho Kao Fernandez. A big congratulations on starting uh, this journey, and I really look forward to hearing and seeing this documentary when it comes out. Yeah, I'm thinking um, maybe President Barack Obama would uh, be interested in seeing this. Oh, are we making that call right now? All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Kuve. Mahalo. That was HPR's Kuvahiri You can find this story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. to go now but up tomorrow we hope to get an update from local five the hotel workers union on this uh, pre-travel testing program leave your feedback for us on our talkback line 808-792-8217 post your comments on facebook at the conversation hpr or tweet us at hi conversation and our email works too talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org Find all of our archive shows online. Just look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.